as you see, I've changed the title slightly. Um, yeah. As, I, uh, as, I, as I've worked on the paper, so my understanding of what I actually have to say changes um, a bit. So over the last couple of months, I've steeped myself in the literature on Southern Unionism, and I'm marrying that with this database that I've been working on for about 10 years or so, that's almost complete, complete now, that uh, uh, works out the histories of manufacturing firms in Ireland from 1922 onwards, which nobody has done before. So I've married these two together. At the same time as I'm working on this paper, I'm also writing on the consequences for the modern Irish economy of Brexit. And as so often happens, the two research projects bleed into each other, and so I'm going to talk about some parallels between the two, because if you think of it, in 1922, the Southern Ireland exited from political and economic union uh, within the UK, and that language of exit is clearly reminiscent of the Brexit discussions of today. And so there are a number of parallels that I'll refer to. Um, one is that the leavers and the remainers subscribed to very different historical narratives. To the nationalists, those who wanted to leave the union, their understanding of what had happened since the Act of Union of 1800 focused on the deindustrialization of the economy, which they ascribed to as, as a consequence of the union itself. So over the 19th century, our Southern Ireland is very substantially deindustrialized. Its textile industries were wiped out by the factory system of the British Industrial Revolution. And this was a key component of the Irish nationalist narrative over the 19th century. Daniel O'Connell, we're told, never tired of reading to his Irish audiences long lists of trades which had existed in the country in 1800 and which were gone by the, the 1830s or 1840s. Charles Stuart Parnell was more explicit in his demands for protection of Irish industry. Parnell's predecessor, Isaac Butt, a professor of economics in Trinity, had written a famous tract very much against the conventional wisdom of the Manchester Free Trade School of Economics called Protection to Home Industry, Some Cases of Its Advantages Reconsidered. And uh, Arthur Griffith, as we know, was very much wedded to the notion of protectionism and the demand for fiscal independence from Britain was a key demand from nationalist Ireland by the time the negotiations for independence came about. So this understanding of the Act of Union as having brought about the deindustrialization of Ireland is one way of looking at history. To the unionists, they said that's completely wrong. They said you're failing to look at the prosperity that has, uh, that has allowed Ulster industry to grow very substantially in what we now call a globalized free trade world. So ship, linen and shipbuilding prospered primarily in Ulster. But more key to our, our, the discussion today is that the Southern Irish nationalist historians also relegated very much to the footnotes the very substantial Southern Irish firms that had grown and prospered under free trade. And Arguably, the reason that they were able to ignore these firms or confine them to the margins was because these were all, by and large, almost exclusively under Anglo-Irish or Protestant ownership. And these are the firms that I want to talk about here. 
another parallel when you think about it. There's a lot of discussion today uh, over the Brexit uh, debate about what's called the social media echo chamber, whereby people of a particular political perspective only interact with other people of that same perspective and they never interact with people of a different perspective. And this is ascribed to social media. But if you think, you know, of the debates of the pre-independence time, you know, the political orientation followed the same fault lines as the ethnic uh, religious divisions in Ireland. So the gulf was far wider, actually, in Ireland between the two sides because it paralleled the ethno-religious divisions. So um, Nora Robertson's memoir of Ascendancy Life was referred to uh, yesterday. She said, she talked of the Southern Irish Union, Southern Unionist community been led by those, and I quote, who had never in their lives mixed with educated nationalists. Um, once the leaders of Southern Unionism started to talk with the Irish Parliamentary Party people in a, an attempt to sideline Sinn Féin, one Southern Unionist leader fa- referred to the fact that we found the nationalists kind of surprisingly congenial, meaning that we'd never really met them before. And even Holman Potterton, a future director of the National Gallery who grew up in 1950s in the Church of Ireland family, refers to another group of family friends as, and I quote, they were our only neighbours. This is not to say that lots of other people didn't live nearby. They did. But as they were Catholic, we did not regard them, no more than they would have regarded us as neighbours and as for mixing socially as friends. That too was out of the question. We read the Irish Times. They read the Irish Independent or the Irish Press. It was as simple or as complicated as that. So talk about an echo chamber. Um, Another parallel that I think is interesting is that, of course, the Southern Unionists saw themselves as more cosmopolitan than the nationalists. You know, much as the Remainers today in the Brexit debate see themselves as more cosmopolitan than the Leavers. So I quote from a Southern Unionist, we saw ourselves and country house culture in general as oases of culture, of uprightness and of fair dealing in what will otherwise be a desert of dead uniformity where lofty ideals, whether of social or imperial interest, will be smothered in an atmosphere of superstition, greed and chicanery. So talk about one, cla- talk about one class of people looking down on another's, but in the language of the Financial Times uses today in the Brexit debate, they, they refer to a, a, a current book by a journalist called political scientist that talks about um, leavers as being somewhere, from somewhere, and remainers as being from anywhere, in that sense of being more cosmopolitan. <laughs> well, in the same way, you know, the Southern Unionists were more from anywhere than from somewhere. Sure, they were grounded to some extent in their Southern Irish communities, but they were, you know, almost as at home in London or in high society elsewhere as they were at home. So the, that, that's a batch of parale- parallels. Now, I primarily want to talk about the the economics of the period of the time. And my essential argument is that the political allegiance of the, uh, allegiances of the time align almost perfectly with narrowly <coughs> defined economic interests. So Northern Unionists would not even countenance Home Rule, a United Ireland Home Rule, because they felt that it would be the slippery slope to independence, which, because political independence would entail fiscal independence, meaning control of tariff policy, that would threaten their globalised interests. So that's a very simple argument to understand. It was a powerful argument for them. Nobody can gainsay that. What about Southern Unionists and their 
economic interests. Well, they were undoubtedly fearful of nationalist majority rule, right? That's, that's very clear. They felt that the nationalist community had little business acumen. So when the discussion of partition came about, you know, the Southern Union said, well, you know, we'll be deprived of Northern Ireland business experience, business acumen, and so on, and this will be bad for the country itself. They were also very fearful, and again, I'm going to put this in modern language, they were very fear- fearful that a Southern Irish Parliament would not be able to hold the line against tax and spend policies of the nationalist community. And of course, as a richer segment, the Southern Unionists were going to be the ones who bear the heavy burden of that taxation. So these were all issues that they were fearful of. Another aspect is that industrialists, because the, the big industries in Southern Ireland were largely under the control of loyalists, as we say here, industrialists were much more uh, strongly represented in the leadership of the Southern Unionist movement. The Southern Nationalist movement, the Irish Parliamentary Party, their traders were much more strongly represented than industrialists. So traders and merchants, shopkeepers and publicans and so on. And this is actually the class of people that would ultimately stand to benefit from protectionism because they were the people with capital and with some degree of business acumen that would be able to establish the industries that ultimately did emerge in Ireland under protectionism. So one can see the class interests there aligning that the the substantial industrialists wanted free trade and were therefore hostile to independence. The trading interests who were strongly represented in the Irish Parliamentary Party were quite content with protectionism because they would be the ones who would benefit. They would be the ones who would have the chance to establish their small, domestically oriented uh, new businesses behind tariff barriers. Um, So there's no inconsistencies there at all. So my main, uh, main point that I want to make here, or main contribution, I suppose, is to identify the large export-oriented Southern Irish industries in the immediate pre-independence and post-independence period. These were the ones with most to fear from independence, because independence might mean tariff barriers, which would threaten their export interests. Protectionism would also raise the cost of living in Ireland, and that would raise their costs and inhibit their international competitiveness. Even under Cumming Whale, which was largely, as you know, a, a free trade uh, government, even under Cumming Whale, uh, tariffs raised import prices by 10%. So that's pretty damaging to your international competitiveness. Under Fianna Fáil, by the end of the 30s, uh, import prices had been raised by tariff barriers by almost 40%. You know? But even co- under Cumming Whale, there was that substantial impact on firms' international competitiveness. And we, so we know that all these issues were, uh, were problematic for internationally trading firms. Partition, this is something I only came to realise quite late in the day, partition is also damaging, of course, for internationally trading firms because these firms will now, rather than just selling into, into Ulster, They're now trading across an international border into Northern Ireland. They're hit with customs duties, uh, tariffs on a range of goods, customs formalities, all these kind of Brexit-related issues. So partition was also detrimental to the trading interests of these large exporting firms. Now, um, something that I think is quite interesting, though, is that quite late in the day when independence was clearly coming, coming, 
um, the Southern Union has said, well, we'll make a concession. So customs and excise are always regarded together. They said, okay, maybe we'll give the nationalists agreement on control of customs. But excise duties, let's... Oh, no, sorry. We, we want customs to remain under the imperial parliament. But maybe we'll give a local parliament control over excise duties. These are consumption taxes. There was a temperance movement, you know, very strong in Britain and clearly much stronger in America at the time that would be threatening to whiskey and brewery interests, which are some of the firms that I'll be talking about here. So giving control over excise to an Irish parliament would actually protect them because an Irish parliament was was going to be less dominated by the temperance movement than the imperial parliament was. So that notion of giving this concession to nationalists, of saying we split up customs and excise, leave customs under the control of the imperial uh, uh, parliament, give control of excise to a southern Irish parliament, that's because a southern Irish parliament would view their interests, whiskey and brewing interests, uh, more benignly. Okay, so that's essentially the kind of theoretical uh, perspective that I'm proposing here. So I have identified 16 large, successful export-oriented firms. Now, there's lots of other big firms, but they're not export-oriented, so I have nothing to say about them. So large, by the way, means, and I'm concerned only with manufacturing here, but... That's fair enough because it was only, manufacturing was the only sector, other than agriculture, was the only sector that was exported at the time. There was no trade in international trade in services. So I've, ident- I've focused only on large firms. That means firms employing 400 or more. By and large, I adhere to that. And export-oriented firms are firms that export a 50% or more of their output, either exported out beyond the island of Ireland or exported into Northern Ireland. So that's my definition of these large export-oriented firms. So I'll just take you through them one by one. So there's a lot of history in this, and I'm not going to say much about each one, but I'll talk about their particular interests, their ownership, the political allegiance of their owners, most of which will probably be known to you. There's some firms you won't have heard of because they collapsed in the 1920s. And in terms of their religion, there was two big foreign multinationals, you might be surprised to know. Um, there was three Catholic firms, interesting, their politics of these Catholic firms, and 11 uh, Protestant and Quaker firms. So one firm you may never have heard of was this, that says Arclo Chemical Works. This was Kinox Armaments Factory in Arclo. It closed at the end of the First World War, um, 3,000 3, workers lost their jobs. Right? That's, a, that's a big labor force. There are... Okay, so this, this, this uh, closed in 1918, so it's pre-independence, clearly. There are rumors, which can't, one can't substantiate at this stage, that the British government put pressure on Kinox. This was a, a subsidiary of a British uh, explosives company to close its Arclo plant because they didn't want it to fall into the hands of a, a free state government. The other big multinational came to Ireland at that time, and that was Ford's Cork plant, started producing tractors in 1919. By 1920, it had a workforce of 1,200. By the late 30s, it would be employing 7,000, so it was huge. So it started, started producing tractors in Cork. At that stage, Cork was Ford's only tractor plant in the world. 
So it was, it was exporting tractors from Cork to North America, South America, South Africa, Australia, all over the world. That makes no economic sense. What had happened, though, was the demand for Model T Fords around the world was so strong that they changed all their other factories elsewhere to producing cars, and Cork was their only one left producing tractors. So they changed. Over the next couple of years, they used Cork to produce car parts that they exported to England and other places around the world. Cork in setting in moving to sorry Ford and moving to Cork had been reassured by Arthur Griffith that an, an independent Ireland wouldn't threaten their trading interests. In other words, we wouldn't be slapping tariffs on exports and imports and cars. But of course, that wasn't necessarily under our control. Uh, Britain had imposed tariffs on car parts during the First World War and it kept those tariffs in place after the war. So Ford found that it didn't make economic sense to keep producing car parts in Cork and exporting them to the UK because they were faced with a tariff barrier. It would be better to move production to the UK. Ultimately, that happened with the opening of Ford's Dagenham plant in the 1920s. Ford was about to close down its Cork plant in 1932, when what happens? Dev comes to power, jacks up tariffs, and Ford says, oh, now there's an opportunity for us to keep the, for the cork plant in place and to assemble cars for the Irish market alone. Much smaller business, but Dev's protectionism actually saved Ford and cork, and it continued to produce until long after we joined the EU. We had free trade in cars, and Ford closed down. The next factory, so those are the two multinationals, so they're of less interest to us. This is, uh, this is Guinness. So as you'll know, Guinness was a high high Tory family, Lords uh, Ardalone and Ivy, and Ivy's son, Walter Guinness, were you know, substantial figures in Irish unionism. Uh, Guinness exported, a sixth of its exports to the UK went to Northern Ireland. So partition was going to be damaging to Guinness, as well as independence <coughs> itself. Um, it had been thinking of opening a plant in Britain for decades, but the economics of it didn't make sense. Well, the economics of it might have made sense, but the technology was problematic because at that time, a, the taste of a beer was thought to be very much associated with where it was produced. It was only in the 1930s in America and in Europe that breweries got over that problem. So by the time Guinness actually set up a factory at Park Royal in London in the early 1930s, that technological problem had been resolved. So it would, have moved, it would have set up in London anyway, whether we had independence or not, because that was a technological development. But Guinness suffered from independence, and you know, they very clearly knew that independence and partition was going to be damaging to their interests. <coughs> This is a company that I've absolutely grown to love, the Condensed Milk Company of Ireland. This, that chimney is still in Limerick. To me, it's the most beautiful building in Limerick. It's on the Clare side of the Shannon. So this is Cleves Condensed Milk Company. It collapsed in the early 1920s, not to do with independence, but to do with bad business strategy. But it had suffered hugely over the War of Independence because, as you know, the British <coughs> Army and the auxiliaries and everybody targeted creameries as reprisals against the rural population. Unfortunately, it also suffered from the nationalist side because its owner, Sir Thomas Henry Cleave, was Limerick's leading unionist and they were denigrated as foreigners and so on. It suffered by the, uh, it was attacked by the irregulars in the Civil War, and it was the company that suffered most from the wave of Soviet strikes 
that took place around 1919, 1920. So Cleves has a sad history. Those of you who are as old as myself might remember a bloke, um, Brian Cleve. He used to work on Seven Days and those political <coughs> shows and so on back in the 60s and 70s. So he was a descendant of this family. So they were strong unionists. Oh, and by the way, just to show you how important Cleves were, in 1920, condensed milk exports out of Ireland came to fully half of brewery exports out of Ireland. So that's big. So next, uh, Jacobs. Jacobs uh, employed <coughs> almost 3,000 people there on Anger Street, uh, Bishop's Gate in Dublin, even though it had a Liverpool factory from 1914 or so. So it was a giant operation. Um, George Jacob, I checked his um, census record recently, fascinating, 1911, he reports himself as to be of no religious denomination. The family had been Quakers. His kids reported themselves to be Church of Ireland, so there was that sort of transition. He didn't play a leading part in politics. I can't find any record of political speeches that he made, but he was later president of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce, and their history records him as being no friend of home rule. So in... 1922, Jacobs split up the British factory and the Irish factory into separate companies, arguably because they thought they were going to be heavily taxed in Ireland. Ultimately, the Liverpool company got the company's entire export trade, and that was as a result of Irish protectionism. So protectionism was detrimental to the Irish company, at least. So it had that consequence. Um, this is the Bow Street Distillery, Jemison's Bow Street Distillery. Um, the whiskey, Irish whiskey was, was in really bad shape state in the 1920s. It had been really outcompeted by Scotch whiskey. It had lost most export markets to Scotch whiskey because of poor strategizing, but because there was a difference in distilling processes between Irish and Scotch. So the Irish whiskey trade was in very poor condition. Andrew Jemison, as you'll know, was head of the firm. In the, 19, in the 1920s and 1910s and so on, and he was really the second, command of the, second in command of the Southern Irish Unionists uh, politically, so it was a bit, another big export-oriented firm. Next one is fascinating, Powers Whiskey. This was a Catholic firm, and they were also Unionist, so they were, amongst, they were probably amongst the well-known uh, Catholic um, Unionists. And again, that's consistent with my view of their economic interests. There was two other big whiskey companies in Ireland, one of which was the Dublin Distillers, which was owned by a different branch of the Jemison family. It collapsed in the 1920s. They were also unionist cork distilleries, which is now makes Middleton whiskey and so on. That was Catholic-owned, but that wasn't export-oriented. So I don't need to deal with that, since my focus here is on export interests. Now, I don't have too much to go. Don't worry about six more firms, but I hope you're getting a bit of interest out of it. Um, when you start working on firm-level histories, like I say, you grow to just love some particular firms for no particular reasons. The Denny Bacon Company, mm, <laughs> I just love it. Um, so it, it, it employed about 800 in Ireland, um, so very highly export-oriented as well. There was other big bacon companies, but none as export-oriented as Denny's. Four of the five big bacon companies were all Protestant-owned. Denny's were Church of Ireland. In the 1920s, control of Denny's shifted from the Irish branch of the family to the English branch, um, which were descendants of 
this bloke who was the son of uh, Henry Denny, the founder. This guy is Edward uh, Maynard Denny, who controlled British Army bacon supplies in the First World War. This is Goulding's Fertilizer, another Irish company. You'll see this is not Ireland. They had a factory in Florida in 1909, so it's one of Ireland's earliest multinationals. Uh, Sir William Goulding, as you know, a strong Irish unionist as well. So Goulding's very export-oriented. Once independence came about, exports from Goulding's in Ireland fell to zero, we think. Why? They had two plants in Northern Ireland, so it made sense to export to serve their British uh, market from the Northern Ireland plants. The Good Bodies, major, major family. As, as, as you'll know, they're still in existence you know, in you know, legal services, accountancy, and so on. At the time, they were huge industrialists. Um, the village of Clara in County Offaly, in case any of you don't know, like is a really early industrial uh, village. Um, their jute factory in Clara employed over 800. They also controlled the main milling interests in Ireland, which they bought out of, from Bannatyne in Limerick, but mi flour milling wasn't an export industry, so I'm ignoring it. They also had a big tobacco concern, which I'll talk about in a bit, but the main export interest they had was their jute milling uh, factory in Clara. So that suffered from independence, but all changed with the onset of the Great Depression and the coming to power of De Valera. With the Great Depression, export markets everywhere collapsed, so it suddenly made sense for these firms to support protection, even though they'd never supported it in the past. So Good Bodies was able to shift from its export markets to producing sacks for sugar and turf in Ireland. So it did reasonably well under De Valera's dispensation, even though that would have been unpredictable at the time of independence. Um, this is a company, that I can't find any photograph of, the Cork Spinning and Weaving Company. This, the factory was later owned by Sun, Sunbeam, which is a later firm. But this was, this was owned, this, this is a huge firm. It, again, it collapsed in the 1920s. It employed 1,000 workers. The chief uh, Founder was James Ogilvie, a Northern Ireland-born Presbyterian and Unionist. Another guy who you might know, F.H. Thompson, who owned Cork's leading bakery <coughs> at the time, who was a Methodist and Unionist. Um, so it collapsed in the 1920s. The linen firms in Southern Ireland, re they basically, most of them collapsed in the 1920s. This had been a completely integrated cross-border industry. So the border was very bad for the linen, linen firms, as was recognised at the time. But Northern Ireland linen was already downhill as well, so we can't ascribe the collapse of these firms entirely to independence. This was Green Mountain Boyne linen. I'll just say a word about it. Green Mount, which was in Harold's Cross in Dublin, was belonged to the Pym family, which is a, an old Quaker family. Uh, the Boyne linen, which was in Drogheda, was a huge concern, employed about a thousand. So together, these firms merged in the 1920s. Again, um, traditionally had been under unionist ownership. Um, you trace the 
religion of the managers into the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and they're all Protestants, so there's an indication of various denominations. So there's an indication of some continuity there. Green Mountain Boyne ultimately switched from producing linen to producing rayon, and so survived for decades afterwards. So as a firm, it was able to strategize out of the problematic era of the time. Uh, Bandon Woolen Mills, or Blarney Woolen Mills, who employed about 800 or so, this was Martin Mahoney's company. This was a nationalist, a Catholic nationalist firm, so it's almost the one firm that doesn't fit into my, the general theory I'm proposing here. But it again benefited from Irish protectionism, but the problem with the firms here that benefited ultimately from Irish protectionism is they lost their export markets, they became totally focused on the Irish domestic market, and when free trade opened up in the 60s and beyond, all these firms collapsed. So difficult to work out what the precise long-term consequence <coughs> of independence was. De Valera, come the Great Depression, may have saved them for a few more decades, but ultimately they collapsed by losing all their export markets. And Limerick Clothing Factory. I'll tell you, because I'm running out of time, I'll skip over that, other than to say this is another huge concern. It'll be fa been founded by Peter Tate in Limerick, to whom there is a statue, a memorial erected. Um, huge firm at the time, first firm in the world to employ the Singer sewing machine to produce ready-made clothes, had a huge trade in producing armies for the Confederates in the civil, American Civil War where it would run union blockades and so on. So all these American people who love the Civil War, there's books and books written on the Limerick clothing factory. Um, Smiths of Balbriggan, a beautiful factory still there today. Well, long closed, but beautiful building out, straight outside the the train station in Limerick. By the 1900s, it had been taken over by the White family, W-H-Y-T-E. I checked them. They're members of the delegates to the you know, uh, uh, Irish Unionist Association and so on. So they're Presbyterian Unionists as well. And then, I think, the, is it the last? Yeah, so my last firm here is Carroll's, which is an, uh, it only employed 200 in the 20s, but had a huge output. In the later 20s, it took over Good Buddies um, Cigarette Company to become the big Irish, Southern Irish company. Um, they were able to deal with protectionism and partition reasonably well, because unlike beer and whiskey, which at the time the taste was associated with the factory where it was produced, cigarettes could be produced anywhere. So what Carroll's did in 1923 was they just immediately set up a factory in Liverpool and a smaller factory in Newry to cater to those markets. And you could do that with cigarettes in a way that you couldn't with beer or tobacco. That's called tariff jumping. So it's a strategy that companies use. And as a the title of a talk I give next month to a group of business economists and so on is when governments put up barriers, firms do what they can to jump over them. So that's called tariff jumping foreign direct investment. So that's what Carroll's did. This, this, re this represents, of course, their big Scottish trade at the time. You might not know Robbie Burns' sister is buried outside the Carroll's where the Carroll's factory used to be in Dundalk. So they used that to get a big Scottish trade. So it was highly export-oriented. Under protectionism, it focused solely on the domestic market, and again, with the onset of free trade, it ultimately collapsed. So there you are. Thank you.